0: SunCast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. SunCast is also brought to you by Trina Solar.
1: Your ability to access energy more cheaply at any hour of the day with better reliability, those are the problems we're solving, right?
0: Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is SunCast. Each week... I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. I am super delighted to have you tune in yet again as we explore the careers and lessons learned from clean energy executives to inspire and inform your own journey and growth. Hey, if you're new to Suncast, thank you and welcome. I hope that you'll find that this information gives you a leg up on the competition, on the industry, helps you find your place. If you missed it, this is part two, part one of our interview with Chuck Swoboda, was such a fantastic ride through his history and how he got to Cree Corporation. We're going to wrap up the conversation today in part two. So I would encourage you to press pause if you didn't already and go back and listen to part one. If you're here because you listen to part one and you just can't get enough, welcome. This is part two. I'm so glad that you are finding his stories, in fact, intriguing and that you're here for more. If you really do love these kinds of insights and stories, then please check out the hundreds of other founder stories that we have at mysuncast.com. Subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to our newsletter so that we can let you know what other exciting information we're bringing to your world. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we dive back into a very powerful conversation with Chuck Swoboda here on Suncast. The IBMs of lighting at the time were Panasonic, GE, OSRAM. I'm probably missing a few, but those are the big ones. And it sounds like you were selling to and through them the silicon carbide semiconductor technology to make their lighting technology better.
1: We were selling them LEDs. So we were their supplier and we decided to become their competitor at the same time. And everyone said, that's going to be a really bad idea. And you had no commercial credibility. Within the lighting business, and this is the part the lighting guys never want to talk about, they all, all the big lighting companies, and at the time, Panasonic was bid in Japan, but around the rest of the world was Philips, Osram, Sylvania, and GE. These guys all sold stuff to each other. So they're these big competitors. They had all these, they they bought piece parts from each other. So we're like, look, this is how the, the whole industry works this way. It's different than when it evolves there than when you try to make it go there. And so the big question for me running a company at the time is, are you sure this is a good idea for you to compete with your customers? My argument was, and the rationale we used was, we could have very big share in a really tiny market, or we could enable this much bigger market and take our chances on trying to keep enough share to make it worthwhile. We're going to bet on the market and, and do it that way. And and by the way, it did strain relationships with a lot of our customers, but it networked over time. And if we wouldn't have done it, the industry would have taken many years longer to develop. And, and one of the things you mentioned earlier was this idea of resistance. So so everyone, you said, I got this light bulb that's going to save you energy and it's going to last so long, it's going to save you money. So the argument is you're going to buy this and it's going to save you money. That only works if it really lasts that long. And in the lighting business, no one had ever guaranteed the light source. Remember, and the, the structure of the industry was someone sells a light fixture and someone else sells a light bulb. So they've disconnected the reliability piece, right? So the lighting companies, the acuities of the world and the Cooper Lightings, they sold you the metal and the ballast, but they didn't actually sell you the bulb that came from a different vendor. And the bulb guys didn't guarantee anything, right? They said it's targeted to last about a thousand or 2000 hours, but if it breaks, just go buy another one, right? It's tough. To make the argument work, you had to prove that it would last a long time. so initially, we came out with the first ever warranty in the lighting industry. We guaranteed our lights for five years of continuous operation. And then later on, when other people started, at first, everyone said, we're crazy that you can't do that. That then became the standard. So eventually, to push the market further, we came out with a 10-year warranty. And so essentially, we were selling lights that you buy them and we're guaranteeing you the light source for a decade. And if that, if you know what that math is, and the reason that was so important is not just to give the customer confidence, but think about if you're going to finance something and my balance sheet is guaranteeing that product, now there was all kinds of alternative ways to finance it. So in the early days, what we thought was going to happen is like they did in solar, people were going to finance this technology. But we brought the cost down so fast when people figured out that the payback was two years, they're like, I'm not going to borrow your money. If I get my money back in two years, I'll just, I'll pay for it myself. So this whole idea of financing LED projects lasted for about 12 months, but we moved the cost curve so fast that it became irrelevant.
0: In 2006, when I was selling solar to CNI and, you know, small utility customers, and I'm sitting there, and I know many who are listening to this have had this experience, you're sitting with the facilities manager and you have that first conversation where he says, well, what's the payback? Well, if if it's longer, it's got to be two years or less. And you realize that where he's coming from is because his lighting vendor has sold him a system that is going to be back and pay back in two years. And it literally set the standard for these types of infrastructure renovation conversations. Right. And I just find it remarkable to hear the way that that story came about and how it affected more than the lighting industry. The variable drive industry, like the solar industry, all of us have had to, at some point, come up against this conversation. Yeah, the payback is more than two years. Also, the lifetime is more than five years. I was thinking about this innovation around the warranty and the fact that your longtime friend, Tom Werner, runs one of the most respected solar companies in the world, SunPower, now part of Total. Do you feel like that warranty idea actually spurred innovation in other industries, namely solar, where the warranty is effect- effectively the way that some power and other companies have been able to get the financial support they need? I mean, really, the warranty is the underlying piece to the financial model, because you have to be able to guarantee in some way that that energy revenue stream is going to be there.
1: Were we that smart when we did it originally We were just trying to prove to someone that the payback, initially it was purely a, I got to make the payback math work. And by the way, two years, that number came from our experience. What we found is that in most companies, forget what you're selling. Before LED lighting came along, most companies, if they have a project that has more than a two-year payback, they fund it like a fraction of the time. It doesn't matter what it's for. So we picked that number because we knew that that had existed before us, right? You know, what typically happens is most companies have capital projects and they have a rate of return on them, right? If it pays for itself in one budget cycle, 12 months, they're funded almost 100%. And if it's 18 months, it goes down and up. And up to two years, you can still get them funded. Once you go over two years, a very small percentage will ever get funded because no one's going to spend their capital on that if they have something that pays for itself faster. It's just bad business. So we shot for that number because of that reason. But the only way to get people to believe us was to give them that warranty. Now, our capital projects end up becoming so cheap relative to things like solar. It ended up not being a financing question, but it absolutely, the math on something like solar doesn't work unless you need a bunch of capital. So you don't need a lot of capital for LEDs. It's a relatively cheap project compared to an infrastructure one, right? So solar is a lot of money. So most companies, there's no way they can get this on their own balance sheet, right? They've got to use someone else's money. And so that's where if you don't have the warranty to guarantee it and the bank's not willing to take that warranty as their collateral, the whole process doesn't work. We got there a different way. We were pursuing the same idea earlier than solar was, but in the end, we kind of ran right past, right? For us, it ended up not being, the warranty ended up becoming something else, which is just purely a symptom of, do you have higher quality LEDs? The reason we pushed warranty was we could, and we knew that there were a lot of Asian made LEDs that would fail. So we purposely looked at what their LEDs were bad at and designed our product to optimize around what we were good at
0: there's an element of stories that go untold in these, in these great leadership examples, right? And I wanted to just probe a little bit there and I'll ask it by way of that sacrifice question. What sacrifice did you have to make to achieve what you ultimately achieved, which is effectively in the history books in the annals of history of how an industry came to be?
1: It's something I had no idea I was sacrificing at the time. So I turned 50 a few years ago. You know, like many other public companies, we do these very extensive annual physicals and you go in and they check everything. And a few weeks after my 50th birthday, I go through my physical and I'm 100% good to go. Not a single thing where I don't need to change my eating. There's literally nothing I need to do better. Like life's great. And I even remember sitting down and, and included in that is you talk to a psychologist, how's it going? And I remember going, look, you know, I've been doing this so long. I don't even really notice the stress anymore, right? It's, it's kind of fine. So I was good. And a couple weeks later, um, some things had happened at Cree, it, you know, there's always problems going on. It, it was a pretty stressful time. And I'd gone out to lunch to kind of problem solve with uh, a couple of my teammates. And we're talking, I'm coming back from lunch and my office was on the third floor. And so I, I never took the elevator. I'd like to take the stairs. And I start walking up the stairs after lunch and I start feeling lightheaded. And I got to the first flight of stairs and I'm like, wow, I'm really lightheaded. I don't, this never happened before. Next slide, I'm like I got to stop for a second. I get up there. I'm like, wow, I, I'm like, like something's wrong. So I, I go back to my desk and I sit down. And I'm like, wow, there is like something messed up. I can't imagine what it is. So I get up and my, my assistant sits across the hall and we have glass offices. And I kind of waved her and said, Hey, can you come in here for a second? And I said, look, there's something wrong. I, I just looked at my watch And it says my heart rate's 158 beats a minute. And I said, I can't be right. Like I would look at it all the time. It can't be that high. And she goes, well, let me check. And she happened to be on the emergency response team and she checks it and she says, oh, it's that high. And it's also not regular. And I said, what does that mean? She said, you're in arrhythmia, at least as far as I can tell. We need to probably take you to the hospital. And I said, oh, I don't wanna do that. I got another meeting this afternoon. She goes, no, I think this is one of those things we got to do. I said, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I got, I got stuff to do and that'd just be really awkward. And she said, all right, so what do you want to do? And I'm sitting there and I started, I mean, I'm feeling worse by the second and I'm finally like, okay, just do what you got to do. So next thing I know, she called the paramedics, called the emergency response team. They come in, take me to the hospital. I definitely am in arrhythmia. I spend two days with my heart freaking out eventually I'm diagnosed with AFib, which is atrial fibrillation, basically means the top and the bottom of your heart start beating at different rates. So if the bottom of my heart was beating 150 beats a minute, the top of my heart was trying to beat 300 beats a minute. Some people have and never notice it. I guarantee you, I could notice mine. After a couple days in the hospital, they did some procedures and tests and we finally got it to stop. And they say, okay, you can go home and hopefully it won't come back again, but it could, we'll put you on this medication. Well, over the next month, It comes back probably once a week and lasts for two days. And so I just have to lay there for two days and you just got to hope it goes away. And if it doesn't, after enough days, they'll eventually try to shock you out of it. One thing led to another. The medication that typically they give people wouldn't work for me. So I had to have surgery. So I have the heart surgery and they fix it. I come home from the hospital. I'm like, okay, finally, life's going to get back to normal. And this is a surgery like you can have it on a Friday and you can go back to work on a Monday. Sitting at my kitchen table, getting ready to go to work on Monday morning. And I'm like, I can't go. My wife's like, what do you mean? I go, I can't leave. She goes, what's going on? I go, I don't know. There is something really wrong. And I said, I can't leave. And so I went, I called my doctor. He said, come on in. And he sat down and he and my cardiologist happened to be in the same office. And they said, we actually want you to talk to the psychologist. And I said, what? said, no, no, you don't understand what I'm feeling. I go, oh, we're pretty sure we understand what you're feeling. They said, we want to talk to the psychologist. And so after about an hour with her and the doctors had given her what they had observed as they were been treating me, they pretty quickly came to the conclusion that uh, I had essentially, I developed an anxiety disorder. And so I'm someone that had never had a symptom that I knew of before that. And now I'm at the point where I don't want to leave my house. Uh, The thought of walking up a set of stairs would cause my body to have not real physical reactions. And so what I learned through this process is, is that if I don't want to have AFib again, and I want to deal with this anxiety disorder, I need to deal with the stress in my life because my diagnosis is cumulative stress anxiety disorder. And the diagnosis of what caused my heart problem is cumulative stress. And the way they described it is essentially 16 plus years as a CEO dealing with that stress every day, It's kind of like any other muscle or parts of your body, you know, a runner, if a runner runs for every day for 16 years and they wear out their knees, none of us is going to think that's weird, right? Like you wore your knees, out. why would you do that? I wore out my nervous system and it is a system. And, you know, up until that point, I didn't know anything about mental health. I mean, I was, was I sympathetic? Yeah. But could I really understand it? No, I, I didn't get it. And, and so I basically, I spent the next month, the doctor said, don't make any short term decisions. Work through this. So I worked at Cree part time. I still was working, but I was medication. And I, they asked me and gave me a choice, would I want to take medication or do therapy? And I said, What's the difference? And they said, They both work about the same in six months, but your best chance is to do both. And I said, I'm in. What do I need to do? That moment decided to change everything. And so I started, I went to, started seeing my therapist two or three times a week around my anxiety, started taking the medication, practicing mindfulness, yoga. And I essentially revamped all my habits and it took about a year, but about 12 months after that moment, I was at a point where I was not relying on the medication anymore and uh, I was living my new normal life. Now, important part of the story for people to understand is that when I was in therapy, I wanted to get better. I said, what does it take? So first of all, what you realize is the challenge with anxiety, I'm a problem solver, The way you deal with anxiety is you accept it. You don't try to fix it. And this makes no sense to an engineer. It's the most illogical concept. But until you get past this, you can't solve this problem. Otherwise, you're in this loop and you can't get out of it. And so as I was processing through it, I said one day, I said, look, I'll keep doing everything you say, but when is the old me going to come back? She looked at me, my therapist, she said, "Um, the old me is never coming back. But if you stick with me... I'm going to make you a deal. I'll promise you that you'll agree that you found a better me. And so for a year, I, every day I woke up hoping that was true. What I found was, is that uh, all these things I did to deal with stress and anxiety actually gave me an appreciation for life that I had no idea before. So when I was CEO, you and I could have talked and I couldn't have recalled anything we talked about when we were done because my brain was, while we were talking, I was already working on the next four things that had to get solved. So I would go to events. I, would go, I was never present, you know, in this I, I And I finally learned what it was like to actually go to dinner with my friends and actually talk to them and engage them. And it was, so it's been a really amazing journey. People have asked, so why do you talk about mental health? I Because it's the only thing I can honestly do to help give back to the people that helped me out. I asked them what I could do. And they said, if you'd talk about it, that's the most important thing because everyone thinks this is something you can't talk about. And so- Look, the fact that I was a CEO, people seem to listen to me more than someone who's not. It doesn't change, it doesn't matter who you are. It's the same, you know, it's the same challenge. There's, I think it's 30% of Americans have treatable anxiety or depression, yet only one third of those ever get treated. Treatable, but yet only a third. So imagine if a third, 30% of the people that had broken arms only got treated. What? They why? And you'd, of course, you go see it. And, And it's very treatable. It's not easy. There's a lot of things you got to do. So I just, for anyone who's listening, I would just say, and by telling my story, I've met so many people that suffer from this. Everyone's story is different. And it's not a, whose is right or wrong? It's just, it's a real thing. And, And I would leave you with this thought. As an engineer, I somehow had convinced myself prior to this that my health and mental health were two parallel but unrelated things. And I remember talking to my doctor one day and he said, hang on a second. So you think the thing that's in your brain, in your head, that's connected to the rest of your body through tissues, like a system, you somehow think it's not the same thing? And I said, that does sound really stupid, doesn't it? And he goes, I'm not saying you said it. And it was like, We as a society have convinced ourselves that our brain's not connected to the rest of our body. It makes no sense. It's totally, I mean, think about it. Your body's a bunch of muscles and nerves and tissues and it's completely interconnected. The fact that this is all related and that you trigger something in your brain and it causes incredible pain or chemical reactions in other parts of your brain, it's completely logical. But as a society, we've convinced people it's not or you should feel stupid about it. And so that's why I wrote the original article. That was kind of my... That was therapy for me to say it. It's been a little over three years. Three years ago, I couldn't have told you that story and not made myself feel really sick. I can now do it generally, and it's, it's just a conversation. It doesn't go away, by the way. So there are still times when I feel really good, and there are times when I overstress my body. And this is not something you fix. This is something you adjust your life to make it work. But it is, and this is going to sound funny. It's probably the best gift I've been given in a long time because I wrote the, I wouldn't have wrote the book if it didn't happen. I wouldn't have started a podcast. I wouldn't have engaged with people on all these really interesting topics. I found the second career that I'd still be working at Cree doing the same thing every day. And instead I found this incredible joy and reward and, and I'm still solving problems. I'm just doing it in a different way and on different terms. And so I'm i uh, I'm super fortunate and thankful for it. I know it sounds a little odd to people, but uh, hopefully that, uh, and then the message for anyone out there who might be feeling the same way is, is that you're not alone and it's amazing. It's incredibly treatable and if you call your doctor and they can't help you, call a different doctor because it is legitimately something that you can work on.
0: It's interesting as someone who suffers from autoimmune disease to hear and, and thinking through like the, the practicality of addressing things like adrenal fatigue, which is very, very similar to what you are describing. I can identify and I'm sure a number of listeners can identify with that moment where
1: you realize nothing's going to be the same. But it doesn't mean it can't be better. I wish I could have recorded what I really felt when she told me that, cause it was not a word of encouragement. It was a, all right, I guess I got no choice. I'll believe you that it's going to turn out. But, uh, she is, uh, she's still someone I, I talk to from time to time now and she's a great, you know, I I retell that story and she always laughs. She says, you know, I'm not sure I was trying to make it feel better that day. I was just trying to be really honest, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, a you know, and as, as an engineer, I've, you know, I'm fortunate enough to get a chance to study how this works and, uh, you know, the science behind it is amazing. I mean, and it it, it affects all kinds of things. You know, there's uh, one of the things that Marquette, the this president of Marquette, Mike Lovell, started something, he and his wife, that's about addressing trauma in Milwaukee because there is incredible data now that shows that young people who grow up with trauma. They develop health issues later in life at a radically higher level than ones that don't. And you're like, wait a minute, like, you might have a higher risk of diabetes when you're 40 if you grow up in a really trauma-filled childhood. And the answer is yes. You're actually, you know, are, look, it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, right? If you're taking a growing organism and stressing it in certain ways, it's going to have some repercussion later on. And so I think for me, it's been really interesting to get in the science. And, you know, here in, in, in Carolina at UNC, they've done some great work where they can actually map the neural networks and they can watch higher neural networks respond to things. And you realize that when you feel bad about something, it's not all in your head. Like your body's actually causing a chemical reaction. It You are feeling like it's real. Like when my anxiety thing was happening, my body was pumping out cortisol and adrenaline 24 hours a day was happening to me. Like that's gonna mess your system up at some point. <laughs>
0: You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts, so why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash Suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy to install software is a win win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash Suncast. As we're describing your timely, although at the time it felt untimely, departure from Cree, it, it makes me reflect on the topic of crisis. and That for you is a very personal crisis. You wrote an amazing article that's now been replicated throughout multiple platforms. I read one uh, version of it on CEO CEOworld.biz. I know that it's becoming sort of, it's sort of taking on a body of its own, the, the idea of how to respond to crisis as, as something that you are helping leaders navigate. You put in as one of the, points in that article, something that I feel is really poignant, especially for the entrepreneurs that I'm talking with, my coaching clients and my friends who are trying to navigate this. And that's uh, a crisis eliminates distractions and it pushes people toward a common goal for which failure is not an option. Can you
1: elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, and it actually gets into the psychology of it. So what a crisis does, and it's actually the last chapter of my book, so it was kind of funny to realize that like, I ended there, and then that became this conversation. So one of the things I noticed when we were running Cree is that if you're pursuing innovation or any big change, your biggest barrier is people's inherent resistance to change. And so we are wired to where most people's subconscious believes that sameness is safety, and change is danger. That's kind of our basic wiring. And that you can say you're going to take a risk of other things, but basically you keep coming back there. Well, a crisis creates a moment where you kind of throw that out. And all of a sudden, in a crisis, sameness doesn't work. It's danger. And now this idea of change, instead of being danger, you can start to see that there's an opportunity. And so for me, what I try to help people realize is, is that in the moment, whether it's COVID-19 or in, in my career, the 2000.com bubble burst or the 2009 recession or you know, 9-11, in these moments, people's wiring changes to where they are now very receptive to doing something different. And what I would encourage entrepreneurs of all sorts is this is that time to try stuff that no one wanted to try before because that risk reward balance is different and it's not just different. And and most people think I'm talking just internally. It's definitely how you should think about it within your organization, but your customer is also in a different place. So the customer also knows the world's different. So if you want them to try something, they're going to be much more receptive to doing it and realizing it might not be perfect the first time. And one of the examples I quote in the article is what happened in higher ed. So in higher education, we spent 10 years at Marquette talking about going online, and a small fraction of most universities' classes were online as of end of February. Mid-March, COVID-19 comes to the U.S. People are like, "Wow, Well, these kids can't come back to school in seven days." Almost every university in the country went 100% online. To give you an idea, at Marquette, they had less than 100 classes online before this happened. One week later, they had over 2,000 courses online in seven days. Now, I know because I was in a conversation, if you sat down with the smartest people in the university and said, if I told you we have to go and do this as fast as possible... What do we think the fastest we could make that conversion was? And the answer would have been somewhere three to five years if we went all in. But we did in seven days. So the point of this is that dynamic exists in every industry right now, and it may not be as dramatic as higher ed and online. But you know, think about telemedicine, an idea that's been around for twenty to thirty years. No one used it. Now you would, if you feel sick, everyone says just call your like do a telemedicine visit. I can. I can go see my cardiologist via telemedicine. One of our biggest f- problems as a country is the cost of healthcare, right? Well, if we can deliver it more efficiently and sort of simply, not only do we lower the cost, but think about this, no matter where you live, you have much more access to the best doctors. The friction between you and the service provider has been reduced. And and even what you're working on, I mean, I know that you you have your virtual event coming up and, you know... You're in the business of, part of what you do is you help organize events, you you make them happen. The fact is, is that the event business in person is shut down indefinitely. But this idea of a virtual event, everyone knows it exists, hasn't gotten a lot of traction because we're used to the old way. Now that we don't have a choice, people are willing to try it. And what's interesting is the barrier to getting people to attend a virtual event is much lower than an in-person one. I mean, if I want to attend one of your events, I just click yes. Like before I had to get on an airplane and so it wasn't you know the cost of the event was minor compared to the travel and the hotel and all the other costs look now you have the opportunity to do that now it will be different what it means is that the people with the best content who make it available will win better so the good news is is that everyone has a more level playing field because if it's virtual it doesn't matter if it's in Las Vegas or Louisiana, right? Or it, it doesn't matter where it's at because it's virtual. So you're not competing against location. And, and I do think in-person events will still exist for many other reasons, but for great content, I think we're gonna see this idea of, hey, if I wanna hear a great speaker, I'd rather hear the great speaker and get access than know that a smaller number of people have to fly somewhere to go. It's it's crazy, right? It's like listening to Brene Brown's Netflix thing. Anyone who's interested in that should get a chance to hear her. And because it's on Netflix, you can't. Like that is, that's the magic of this platform. It doesn't solve all problems. So I just, I think we're in a really interesting time. And so, you know, as it applies to solar, you know, I think one of the messages that it, it should be a reminder that it's been 20 years battling to convince people that solar was this really good option and everyone should use it. And the fact is now there's a pretty good understanding that this is a, This is a mainstream source of energy, right? We're not fighting that fight anymore, but it doesn't mean we're done. Like, it just means we solved that problem. Look, LED lighting, in the beginning, it was convincing people they should want LEDs. Once everyone wanted them, the problem was completely different. And so what I would also say is these moments will create new opportunities to engage and challenge people in different ways. And what you got to realize is you got to go look for them, right? Because for every new problem that gets created, there is a new business opportunity to solve it. You know, with Christensen passing this year, a lot of folks are
0: thinking and re- re- rereading The Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, I think at last count, there are more than 50,000 books on innovation in some way or other. I'd love to hear why another book on innovation.
1: I was talking to the folks at Marquette and uh, giving a, a, a speech about just uh, stories about Cree and some of the things we did from a leadership standpoint. And afterwards, I was approached by the person that runs their leadership development program. And she said, you know, would you mind maybe taking a look at something we do here that we teach? The third year of it is focused on leading innovation. And some of the things you said seem, seem different than what we're teaching. And I'd just be curious your reaction. So I'm a retired guy at the time. So yeah, send me the stuff. So I read it all. And as I read it, I was struck that while some of the ideas were interesting, it was really based on the premise about how you were going to manage the process of innovation. And from my experience, most of what they were teaching wasn't going to work. So I went back to tell them, hey, I think this is nice stuff. It looks like it was written by a business school professor. It's not how it really works. I'm just telling you, it's, innovation is a people problem, not a process problem. And they said, that's great. And I said, okay. They said, could you write us a book? I said, you're joking. And they said, no, like your whole argument is interesting. Can you write it down? So that's what got me down this path to try to let people know that probably those tools and those processes, there's value to them. But if you don't start with the right mindset, all the tools in the world will not make you innovative. It's why so many companies throw the word innovation around. And so few of them are actually innovative because- The first thing you have to realize is is that if you want to innovate, most of the stuff you do to manage the company, you've got to ignore it, abandon it, go around it, do something to get past it. Because the things that make you good at management, like getting people to follow a process to do the same thing over and over again to get a predictable outcome, that has nothing to do with discovering something that's never been done before. Or, hey, let's follow best practice. Think about best practice, right? A best practice means you can't be any better than what someone else has already done. So, if there's no possible way a best practice leads to something new and different and innovative, it's no. It's like, hey, I'm the second or third guy to get there. Yeehaw! I, there's no benefit to that. And so, it was this idea that you have to start thinking differently. And it's both about expectations about what you should try to do. It's also how you think. You know, this the concept of failure. I talk a lot about in the book. And when I was interviewing people, I wanted my ideal candidate to come work for Cree was unafraid of failure, yet unwilling to fail. And if they had those two pieces, they were going to be great at what we were trying to. So that's what I was trying to do. The book was really a chance to hopefully give people a way to discover the mindset. I'd never written a book before. I wrote typically very boring things like earnings call scripts. In the process of writing this, I had the help of a phenomenal ghostwriter who basically just tell me your stories. And what he taught me was is to write the book like I'm talking to you. And so. Our conversation and the tone of the book are kind of the same thing. It's In fact, I structured the book as a series of questions, like almost like I was interviewing you if you were going to come work at Cree. It's not formally done that way, but in the back of my mind, as I was writing it, I was trying to tease out the different things I was trying to find out about you to whether or not you would have been successful in what we were trying to do. And so hopefully some people find it entertaining and interesting. If everyone says, so what's my goal for it? I said, if, if one person reads the book and it enables them to do something they didn't think they could do before, it was worth it.
0: Yeah, it's funny. um, As I was looking at the outline originally, I thought the focus, the mind, the chapter 10 on the mindset was perhaps my original conjecture was perhaps that as someone who had uh, had this sort of new awakening to what life is like, when you can remember a conversation with your friends over dinner, uh, that it might be on um, mindfulness and meditations in which sense it is so uh, in the zeitgeist in in public eye today. One of the things that that I noticed as a through line in the book is the idea, and you use it a couple of times, a thing drives innovation. And I would encourage folks to read the book because you use a lot of great stories about the history of Cree and in fact, the history of innovation in our country and, and what it means for what, what innovation can look like for us. Early in the book, when you talk about Edison and Tesla, you talk about how benefits drive innovation. At the end of the book, it's sort of the thesis of the last chapter. You talk about the focus driving innovation. How would you coach a young Chuck Swoboda or a young CEO trying to think about the nature of disrupting the energy business with things like energy storage and adopting tools from online marketing to drive sales and, and leads for residential, uh, or innovating around the way that the utility model integrates renewables versus fossil fuel. What, around, around that topic of how to drive innovation in the company, how, what advice might you give?
1: So what happened to me at Cree, and I think it happens in a lot of companies, and engineers are famous for this, engineers are in love with features. What does your widget do better? So no one wants battery storage. Nobody wants solar power. People want their lights to work. And they want it to work all the time. And they want it to work as cost-effectively as possible. And do some people care a lot where that energy comes from? Yes, some do. But in my experience, the most powerful motivator is someone's wallet. And so the question is, when we come up with these new ideas, and by the way, I love where we're going in the energy business. I think there's some incredibly exciting things coming, but I think to make them successful, we have to ask ourselves, what problem are we solving? And so how you do it is not interesting. And and maybe an analogy of this is people like to always tell me, you say, what problem are you solving? And they would tell me. How they're going to solve? I said, no, no, no. Like, why should I care? And they tell me how again. I said, like, someone told me this a long time ago. I don't really want to know how they make the sausage. I just like sausage, okay, because it tastes good, right? So skip all the how you got there. No one really. The customer doesn't ultimately care. And so I think what happens for most of us in technology-driven businesses is we're in love with we're in love with what's new and different. When in to make it count it's you have to consider why does it matter like make it relevant to the customer and so you know what this new technology does is it's not battery storage it's look your ability to access energy more cheaply at any hour of the day with better reliability those are the problems we're solving right and you know just think about how silly the system we have today i mean We have giant power plants and lines running all around the country and we know that every foot of line is loss, right? Doesn't it seem kind of logical that we could deliver that energy somehow better and better in a way the customer cares about, right? Cheaper, more reliably, right? By putting it closer to them? It just seems to me that that just seems kind of like a logical argument. Now, lots of technology has to happen to do that, but I think that's where we gotta get to. And I think if if people in the business Spend less time on what their features are, and more time just solving the customer problem. And, and for us, look, guys, in, in LED lighting, it was very simple. We didn't save people energy, and we didn't keep them from replacing their light bulbs. Those were the features. The benefit was it was cheaper. So you either decided you wanted to waste money on your old light bulbs, or you didn't. It was no more complicated than that.
0: I believe that readers are leaders, and leaders are readers. I wonder if there are uh, a handful of books. Maybe there's one. Maybe more that you. Routinely,
1: routinely gift or recommend and why? When it comes to business books, the book I've recommended the most of all is The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen. I remember getting it when it came out and realizing that he had written a book about a problem that I thought I was all alone and facing. And I would read it, even though the stories are 20 plus years old now, it's actually a story in human psychology. And to me, if you read it with that lens, it's an incredibly powerful book because it's explaining why it's so hard to change. And fundamentally, no matter what industry you're in, you know, if you're going to change it through innovation, you have to understand the psychology of why people do and don't want. At the end of the day, the guy's not changing because he's a bad guy. He wants to get his paycheck. He wants to make his bonus. He's worried about the mortgage payment, right? And if you really think about Clay's book, it does a great job. He talks about it at a different level, but that's what I took away from it, especially the second time I read it. So to me, that's my favorite. I've tried a lot of other books that are around psychology of of things. And so what I found in my career is that the traditional innovation books are not stuff I quite got as much. So I've been really interested in things like, you know, a book I gave away for a period of time is I gave a lot of people the book Predictably Irrational because it was really an interesting look at how people think about things. And then the other book that, and this is one I've given more than any others, is when I was in operations, I gave out more copies of a book called The Goal than anything else. The Goal, yeah, it's been recommended. Do you remember the author? Uh, It's Goldrad. He's now, he's passed away. But I forget how many 10, I believe he sold over 10 million copies of that book, by the way. And if you work in a business that has to make something, you should read the book. Early on, I told you a story about I became the operations manager. I didn't know what I was doing. There was a copy of that book laying on the bookshelf in the office I inherited. I took it home and read it that weekend. It is a novel. It is a story about a guy who takes over a factory. It's written as a novel. He teaches you some of the most incredibly powerful theories that you can apply in all kinds of business and that, honestly, I've applied in our business of innovation. It's it's really a book about the theory of constraints that what you really need to understand is what's limiting us from getting there. And it's not everything. It's usually one or two things. The book's a manufacturing story, but again, if you read it like it's a life story, it's the same everywhere. It's how we approach technology, right? It's my constraint was smart people that could solve one of the problems. Everyone in the rest of the organization was designed to not screw that up. So, literally, if you worked in a function that wasn't there, your job was to optimize that one, not the other way around. I don't care what your job title is. And so, to me, if I had to pick three, I'd start there. They're all different and interesting. And maybe I might even read my own book, but I've read it a lot recently. Where can
0: people? learn more about you, get into your reading. I've got a, a, a slew of links I'm going to share of how they can find you on Forbes and whatnot, but do you have a place that you send folks to get, to get learn more?
1: Yeah, the easiest place is to go to my website at chuckswoboda.com. So pretty much everything is linked into that. So you can find all the content, you can get access to the podcast through that. All my Forbes articles or anywhere I'm writing end up being linked there as well. And then the only other places is that I tend to you try to do something most every day on social media just to get people thinking, right? I'm a, I'll am a. be honest, I'm still learning to embrace that medium because uh, as Brene Brown would say, is I have a little trouble with people who aren't in the arena having a loud voice, but that's on me, not on them. And so I'm learning to embrace that, but I have found it to be, I get something out of that almost every day. I, I found some people that are really interesting just to they give me a little bit of inspiration each day, and I think you have to look at it for what it is, right? And uh, I don't, I don't use it for news. I use it for a little bit of inspiration from some, uh, some from some other, you know, pretty smart people. Do you mostly show up on LinkedIn or Twitter? Where is it that you spend time? So I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. So on Instagram and Twitter, it's at the Chuck Swaboda, and on LinkedIn, I probably have is almost all my content is there. The daily stuff is on Twitter, but I'm on LinkedIn a couple times a week. Well, Chuck, let's
0: end today's conversation with what we call a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? You sort of have a track record of this. So what's in your crystal ball?
1: You know, I've never been good at pure crystal balls uh, predictions. And the reason for that is, I think there's a connection, right? You're You're really doing is connecting some dots that others haven't connected yet. And for me, you know, since your audience is so focused on the energy business, I just can't help but think that there's a day when the energy business is almost completely distributed because we're going to be driving around with massive energy storage devices called electric vehicles. I see this incredible localization of energy to where it is a distributed network not a centralized network and all the things that come with that and uh, just like in computing we went from central to distributed and there's many reasons around the logic of why that works better including speed and reliability i just can't believe it won't happen and i know a lot of people are talking about it but i haven't seen anyone push it far enough but you know if i was in the energy business that's where i'd be spending my time because i just it just seems logical and obvious to me it will happen but like not a little bit we will at some point not have large-scale centralized power distribution. That's what I believe happens. There's just no point to it. Well, as that day does become reality and many
0: in the gallery are cheering you on in there, from their kitchens or their cars or wherever they may be still sheltered in place as they hear you say that, certainly it has been the drum that many of us have been beating for uh, quite some time. It's encouraging to hear from someone with as much experience and insight as yourself, that also believes that. Chuck Swoboda is the innovator-in-residence at Marquette University. He's also the president of K-Point Advisors, and as we talked today, the retired chairman and CEO of Cree Incorporated. And you can find out more about Chuck at ChuckSwoboda.com, as well as check it out. Don't miss his book, which is probably going live before this episode hits your earbuds. So go ahead and jump on Amazon and check out the innovator spirit. Of course, we have all that linked in the show notes at mysuncast.com. And we look forward to having another conversation with you in the not too distant future, Chuck. Thank you so much for joining us today on Suncast.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure. And uh, I'm excited to see what happens in your industry. I think the last words are is you guys aren't done yet. We got so much more to do. And so I would just encourage you to realize there's a whole nother round of innovation coming all right
0: warriors i am saturated and i know that if you're listening all the way through to the end then you are more prepared than ever to take on this energy transition with renewed vigor strength insight and tactical advice the wisdom and golden nuggets that chuck continues to share of his encounters of his work. It has left an indelible impact on my life, and I'm sure that it will on yours as well. I hope that you would take some time to share what was it that stood out for you in this conversation with Chuck Swoboda. We always post these episodes to LinkedIn, so a simple comment in that post would just be amazing and flattering. And hey, if you share it, I'm both humbled and honored. If you're eager to keep learning, then You, my fellow follow-math, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with social media links, book recommendations, book links to Chuck's book, and more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. While you're there, please take a couple minutes to fill out that listener survey I mentioned at the beginning of part one. It truly helps as we strive to make this better for you. I really do read every question. Again, that's mysuncast.com forward slash survey. I hope that you'll tune in next week for more inspiring and tactical advice. As Tuesdays, we feature short form episodes we call Tactical Tuesdays. We introduce you to subject matter experts in 20 to 30 minute bite-sized nuggets designed to help give you specific insights that are very interesting, at least to make you more interesting in your networking and your conversations and dinner. And every Thursday is a longer form conversation with founders, executives, change makers and thought leaders of the clean economy, much like Chuck Swoboda. We explore their origin stories, glean their on the ground insights and advice and delve into their personal business and life hacks as all of this is in service of helping you level up your game and be well equipped for the journey from apprentice to master. Hey, speaking of master, if you're newbie to this industry, And just trying to find your way around, I highly encourage you to join our free Facebook group, The Energy Guild, to network with hundreds of other clean energy professionals, get access to our exclusive trainings, mentorship, and guild only guides, so much more. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks for lending us your ears. Thanks for showing up again, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.